Welcome home. My name is Wade Owens. I'm the pastor here. And over the next couple of weeks as we start this series, you're going to meet uh, different missionaries that our church has sent out across the world. And I hope you have the opportunity to kind of write down their name and, and pray for them. And we are grateful for all that God has done in and through our church, but we're grateful for the people that God has sent out from this church that are making a difference as his witnesses around the world. And so welcome home. I am excited to jump in. Most of you, whether you know it or not, are familiar with what this is. This is the Mississippi River, and it is a massive river. In fact, $1 billion of commerce flows down the Mississippi River every day, and around $400 billion a year is, is traveling up and down this river. They say 60% of all of the grain in the U.S. flows up and down this river. 22% of all the oil and gas flows up and down this river. 300,000 jobs a year in the U.S., are associated with this river. It's, it's a powerful body of water. I mean, Mark Twain wrote about it. Songs about this river have been sung. It's a massive part of your daily life, even if you don't know about it or have never been there. It has a major impact on you. But did you know, up near the Canadian border in Minnesota, this is where it begins. This little ditch right here is the headwaters of the mighty Mississippi River. And from this tiny little ditch, it travels 2,320 miles and grows and becomes this expansive body of water until it dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. But it starts as a ditch right outside of Lake Atascas. And that word Lake Atascas has two words in it, veritas and kaput. And that, that word means truth head. And so this, this little ditch right here is the truth head of the entire mighty Mississippi. From this ditch, if you follow its path, you enter the mighty Mississippi. So I, I tell you that today and point you to this because, as I said, we're, we're starting a series on, on the book of Acts today. And Luke, the author of this book, he, he tells the world, I have found the truth head. And he writes all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then in the, in the book of Acts, he says, this is the foundation of the early church built on the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit. It's the truth head. And what we're going to learn is that we're 120 people approximately in Jerusalem, when this book begins, just a small little headwater, just, just a ditch of a gathering. But, but it ends with the gospel of Jesus Christ pervading the known world. The mighty Mississippi is flowing. And we're going to see how in the world did the church go from just a few believers huddled, huddled up in Jerusalem to 2.5 billion Christians around the globe 2,000 years later, a little ditch to a mighty river. And so we're going to learn, we're going to study, we're going to dig in, and we're also going to learn what it looks like to reproduce that sort of lives as disciples who multiply disciples. And listen, I'm pumped about this series. We've been planning this for well over a year. One, one theologian said it this way. He said, this book, the book of Acts, should 
be studied at least every five years in the church because this book shows us what, what men and women convinced of the resurrection, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can do in this world. He said this, this is a book for the church in any century. And so we're, we're going to get after it over the next couple of weeks and months. And so I do hope you grabbed your scriptural, scripture journal. We had these made just for you with you in mind. So I want you to wear them out. I want you to take good notes. Don't leave them in here. I don't want to find them on the chairs. We made these for you. They're a gift from you. I want you to dig in, write stuff down. And so I'm ready. And if you're ready to jump in, say amen. 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 So Lord, today... As we study the birth of the early church, this, this ditch of 120 people became a flowing river that has touched every corner of the globe 2,000 years later. God, would, would you allow us to reproduce that? Would what you've done in the church at Nolensville just be a small ditch that would become a flowing river that would touch Middle Tennessee, the nation's and our neighbors, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? So get your journal, open it up to the first page, and let's dive in first with a little bit of background to the book. And so if we want to talk about an author and timeline, most of you may know that it was written by Luke. And Luke is the only non-Jewish author in the entire Bible. He's the only one we get. He was a Greek physician. And History, tradition tells us that he was probably born somewhere in Syrian Antioch. He remained unmarried and died somewhere at around 84 years old. And he writes Acts as a continuation, as Devin said, of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And together, that represents 28% of the entire New Testament, meaning Luke is the most prolific author in the entire New Testament. Paul wrote more books, but Luke gave us more content. In fact, Luke wrote 2,138 verses in the New Testament, and Paul wrote 2,033. They're probably still arguing about that in heaven right now. Now, Luke was also Paul's traveling companion. Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. And as you Read through this book, you'll find it will abruptly end with Paul in prison in Rome. And that's likely around the time that Luke wrote this, around 63 AD. Acts begins where the gospel of Luke left off. The death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's around 33 AD. And you're going to read Jesus' last words to the disciples in Acts 1-8. And then... Luke is going to cover the first 30 years of the early church. And, and Acts kind of functions as a book of powerful different transitions. And inside this book, you're going to see a transition from the Gospels, the life of Jesus, to the epistles, the letters that Paul wrote and others to churches. That gives us history. It's going to talk about a transition from Judaism to Christianity, from law to grace, and from Jews alone to Jews and Gentiles together in the family of God. Praise God. And I'm pumped about that last one, and you should be too, because 99.9% .9 of us are not of Jewish origin, and praise God we've been grafted in. Amen? So it gives us that transition, and if you want sort of an outline of the book of Acts, you should write this down. It begins with witnesses in Jerusalem, and Peter's sort of a main character 
chapter 1 through chapter 8. This is the power and the progress of the church getting started. So they're witnesses in Jerusalem. And then you're going to see that they're witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And most people, when they think of Acts, they think of Peter and Paul. But Philip, he's a, he's a main character here. And this is the expansion of the church in these chapters. And then finally, we get to witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is where you meet Paul and you learn about all of his missionary journeys and his trials and the churches getting planted. And you see that it begins with the headwaters in Jerusalem, but it doesn't just flow in one direction like the Mississippi. No, no, no. It's like a ripple that touches the entire world. And finally, the good news of Jesus arrives right here in Tennessee. And by the time we end the book of Acts, the Christian church is established. It's taking missionary journeys and planting other churches. They're gathering on Sunday, not on Saturday. Deacons are established. It's, it's a glorious, glorious journey through what God did in the early church. And so give you a little bit of background. And now let's just enter into today the first eight verses. Let's, let's look and see what Luke wrote. He said, I wrote the first narrative. What was the first narrative? The gospel of Luke. That's right. Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, that's his ascension, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So Luke writes to Theophilus, both in Luke and Acts, and Theophilus gets more scripture written to him than anyone else in the Bible. Both Luke and Acts are addressed to him. We don't know a lot about him, but his name means friend of of God. We know kind of through tradition that the title means he was probably a man of pretty high social standing, and he was likely a man of significant means. And most people think he actually funded the publishing of both Luke and Acts so that the entire Greek world and Gentile world would get the gospel out. And so that's, that's who he's writing to. And he mentions another important word here. He mentions apostles. And this word apostle, although it's not capitalized here, I want you to think of this as a capital A apostle. And this word means one who is sent out. And, and in the New Testament, there are two types of usages of the word apostle. And the first one, like I said, would be a capital A apostle. And he's referring to the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Christ. The other apostle is just a generic term for people who are sent out. But this specific term, capital A apostle, isn't present in the church today. This, this was a group of people at one time, and there were specific qualifications to be an apostle. Number one, you had to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. You had to have seen him in person. Two, you had to be explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. And three, you had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this was a unique group of people that aren't present still today. And the responsibility of these 12 was to lay the foundation of the early church. And so 2,000 years later, we're not working on the foundation of the church. It's been built we are now building on that foundation and continuing to be witnesses in our day. And so that's what's happening here in the first two verses. 
Verse 3 says, After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke is reminding them, hey, Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. And people in their day and still today, they think, well, you know, the resurrection was made up. They had a delusion. They lied. Or they just saw something that they didn't really see. Did you know? In the, last, in the last 2,000 years, there is no medical evidence of a group of people having a hallucination that they all shared at the same time where they saw the same thing. It says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? He's alive. And Luke is reminding them, you're going to risk your life for the guy who walked out of the grave to save your life. So so go and, and be. You're, you're on solid ground. Jesus is alive. And then verse 4 and 5. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. What's the Father's promise? Which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the, what's the word? In a few days. So I want to camp out here for a minute. We need to do a little bit of work. The, the, the word baptized here, that word literally means overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, he says, by the Holy Spirit. And some would argue that what Luke is writing about here is like a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. That, that's not what Luke is talking about here. He's saying, remember, God told you to go and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what he's writing about is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside the believers of the early church for the first time. So remember, this is the beginning, the establishing of the, Holy, of the church. So the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't been sent. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is a he, <laughs> not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's presence would come upon people, but would not permanently indwell people. He hadn't come and taken up residence in a believer's life yet. So he told him, remember, you got to go wait. Jesus said prior to his ascension, hey, I'm going to leave, but I'm sending you another. That's the Holy Spirit. He said he's going to have the same essence, have the same power, basically be the same person. So Jesus was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So they had to wait until his power and his presence came. Now, the church is established, and in the life of every believer, at the moment of salvation, the moment we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit. He seals us. He indwells us forever. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive his power and his presence and his authority for the mission of God. And that, that was the secret sauce of the early church, the power of God, the presence of God, the authority of God. And so they were told, go wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you because you need his power. You need his authority. And here's what I know, church. Listen, look right here. The exact same Holy Spirit that empowered and indwelled that early church to change the world is alive in your life right where you sit. So don't you think for a minute that we are helpless are hopeless, and we're only left to read about mighty works of God. The same Spirit 
is alive in this church and can turn what has begun as just a little ditch into a mighty river over the next 30 years. Amen? We have as much of God as we ever need. His divine power and presence lives within us. The moment you experience salvation, boom, you have access to 100% of the power and wisdom and authority of God. But you got to learn to recognize his voice more than your own. you got to learn to surrender to him and say yes to him and, and no to self. we got to learn to live the type of lives that says, I don't, I don't want to live in my own power and my own strength. The very Spirit of God indwells me. So I don't want to brag about what I can do. I want to boast about what God has done in me and through me. I don't want to walk with a swagger. I want a godly type of surrender. Let me give you an illustration and show this picture right here. What is this right here? That is a lion in uh, Maasai Mara, which is one of the top safari destinations in Nairobi, Kenya. And I took this picture with my cell phone. Been there many times. It sits right on the edge of where the Serengeti in Tanzania comes up into Kenya. And if you've ever watched on the Discovery Channel where the million-plus herd of wildebeest go and they travel and they cross the rivers and you've seen the alley. Y'all seen that? So I was there during the migration, and what you don't know is that on the other side of this little bush here is a dead wildebeest that he had just feasted on, and I'm probably 10 yards from him taking a picture with my camera safe inside a safari truck, and what you can't see is right over here is another safari truck with this group of people, and there was a guy in the truck with the lion in the background going like this, mmm. Right in front of the lion, like, hey, get the lion in the background, but get me flexing. He's like, mm. and I'm like, dude, he will eat your face off. <laughs> Go ahead, climb out of the truck and be like, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Yeah, walk up, scratching behind the ear and flex. You're standing a few feet away from the most powerful predator on planet Earth, and you're flexing. Bro, you are a fool, man. The early church didn't flex. They didn't say, look at us. They didn't flex their own strength. And they waited until God indwelled them with his power and his presence and his authority before they went to accomplish his mission. And every person in here that names the name of Jesus has the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, alive in your life. But most of you have yet to become desperate enough for the Spirit of God to really work in your life. And so we, we pray for a day, <laughs> two, maybe a week, but, but then if nothing happens, well, we're going to go do something even if it's wrong. <laughs> and so we start the wrong conversation at the wrong time, we, we, we haven't developed a, a patience desperately waiting on the Lord to move. So they were told, wait. There's a power and a presence and an authority coming. Wait. And one author said it this way. He said, a Christian full of the Holy Spirit is a powerful and dangerous weapon in the hands of God. But a self-powered person is a distraction and disobedient. Hmm. Think about it this way. 
Paul, who you'll meet at the end of the book, wrote to a church he planted on the missionary journey in this book, and he said this, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be, what's the word? Filled with the Spirit. Now, he's talking to Christians who have been indwelled with the Spirit. He didn't say receive the Spirit. He said be filled with the Spirit. Filled is the Greek word phlero, which means control, influence, empowerment. And it's an imperative. It's a command. Be filled. Be influenced. Be empowered. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So conversely, the command would be stop influencing yourself. Stop being empowered by yourself. Stop being led with your own ideas, your own passions, your own dreams, your own desires. Stop living in your own strength. So to be filled means you got to surrender. We've been indwelled, but we need to be empowered. And listen, the Holy Spirit's not a genie in the bottle. You don't grab his power. His power grabs you. We yield to the Spirit. We submit to his influence. So to be filled means you've got to surrender. God, I want your power in my life. I want your dreams for my life. I want your peace for my life, your vision for my future, your strength in my marriage, your power in my life, your leadership in my home. And the Holy Spirit that was promised this early church that empowered them has a role in your life. He's, he's, he's your counselor. How many of y'all, raise your hands, but how many of you have ever been at a point in your life where you have no idea what to do? That's pretty easy. You're like, you said don't raise your hand, but whoo, right here. Gosh, guys, there are so many times I have no idea how to be a great father. Sometimes I just I feel lost navigating a, a responsibility with teenagers. I always know what to do. I don't, I don't always, always how to be like the best husband. Sometimes I, I feel really lost. Like, okay, what is the next best thing for our church, God? We don't want to be busy. We want to be purposeful. How do we make disciples? What do we do? I feel... But the Holy Spirit is alive in my life, and his role is to be my counselor source of strength and empowerment. So instead of me deciding, this is what I'm going to do, I'm like, no, Lord, I want to surrender. I want to listen. I want to yield. I want to I hear. Would you speak to me through the Holy Spirit? Be my counselor. Not only is he a counselor, he's, he's an advocate. How many of you have ever felt abandoned, forgotten, marginalized, pushed to the side? Nobody hears my side. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody sees an advocate for you. Sometimes I struggle with a little bit of guilt or shame. He's an advocate for us. Not only is he an advocate, he's, he's a comforter. Gosh, how many times have you put your head on your pillow, stressed out at night? God, I give this to you, drift off to sleep, and then like, whoop, I took it back. But he's a comforter, God. <laughs> I, need, I need your peace in my life. I need, I need you to allow joy to bubble up in a season that seems grim. I need to be able to give a kind word when all I'm receiving is harshness. And so he's, he's a comforter and he's, he, he's a helper. And all of this is available. And for so many of us, we just operate in our own strength. 
So we try to love others well, love our wives, our kids. I try to love you, lead this church well. But a follower of Jesus, a Christian, trying to do this life and live out your purpose and calling in your own strength and have the wisdom and the joy and the peace that you need on your own always ends up in the same place. Burned out. But ultimately, God said, I'm going to send my spirit. And he didn't send his spirit to empower our lives just to make them better. He sent his lives to his spirit into our lives to empower us for his mission. Look at what Luke says next. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my, what's the word? Witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 is one of the more pivotal verses in the entire book of Acts. We're going to talk about it for several weeks. We'll keep referring back to it. And what, I, what I want you to know today is that this word witnesses, it's, it's the Greek word martyr. It's where, where we get the same word for people who gave their life for something, martyr. And it speaks of a self-sacrificing type of act or person. You're going to be my witnesses. And, and what this word witness means is, is someone so assured of what they're saying is true that they will never recount even to the point of death. I'm so convinced of what I believe and what you need to hear that I will never recount regardless of the fact that it cost me my life. One who knows with certainty that the message that they have is true. And so they'll be self-sacrificing to fulfill the mission of God in spite of every cost because they're driven by a conviction. A deep desperation to obey because they know it's the only thing that matters. So, so this week I just started dreaming and praying. I started asking the Lord, like, imagine, God. Imagine if, if 2,000 years later there was still somewhere in some place a group of people that, that wanted to have that type of conviction. That... We're convinced that they had eternal answers to eternal questions. And they were so committed to the task today that they spent their lives with a singular purpose. To carry on the role of being a witness, a worldwide witness, an ever-expanding witness, a witness guided by the very hand of God and Powered by the very Spirit of God that believes this good news, this resurrected Savior, is the answer to the world. Convicted that it's true. Imagine if those people still existed. Imagine if there were people today that were convinced that the good news of Jesus is actually the answer to the culture war we're facing. That we're not going to elect the right person. We're not going to vote the type of change we need. We're going to be the type of change this world needs. 
Imagine if there was a group of people that, that had that sort of conviction that I believe no matter how small, it would be a ditch that became a river. Penn Gillette, who I mentioned last week, the famous atheist, tells a story about after a show one time, a, a guy came up and handed him a Bible. He's like, man, don't you know I'm an atheist? Why are you handing me a Bible? And the guy said, well, what you don't know is I'm a Christian, <laughs> and I have to give you this Bible because I know what this book says, and I have to give this to you. Like a conviction. I have eternal answers to eternal things. And so P.J. O'Rourke says this. <laughs> I love it. He says, everybody wants to change the world but nobody wants to do the dishes. We can't just wish the church at Nolensville to become a mighty river. You can't just wish your family to flourish. You can't just wish these things to happen. You gotta, you gotta start doing some dishes. You gotta start becoming obedient into the basic things in our life that God says for us to do. We gotta begin to do something with what we hear. Hebrews 10:24 says, Hey, don't forsake gathering as believers. That is so true. And, and look, I'm so glad that you're here, and I know the amount of work it takes just to get here. Like your busy lives, you gotta wrangle kids, your neighbors are looking at you like you are so crazy getting everybody in a car, in car seats, and here on a Sunday morning. Like, I know what it takes. It took two arguments, three fights, and a grounding just to be here. I know your challenge isn't to simply, simply come here. Your challenge isn't just to be here. Your challenge is to become all that God is dreaming for you. And you are not alone. Look around. The Spirit of God is in you. We are for you. The Word of God is available to you. There's 168 hours in this week. You are gathered for one. My request to you is that you begin a life of obedience in the other 167. Be, begin to listen. God, your Spirit's alive in me. I just want to I want, to, I, want to, I want to surrender. I want to submit. I want to hear. I want to know. I want to follow. The church exploded because they believed what they saw. They had walked with Jesus from his baptism to his ascension. And they believed his life, his mission, his purpose was the only thing that mattered. And so this week, could you take one next step? in your life of being a disciple that multiplies disciples. God, I, I want to I listen. I want to learn. I want to surrender. I want to wait. I want to be guided. I want to be convicted. People are not impressed that we attend church, we have a church, we've built a church. It doesn't impress people. People are not impressed that you're here. People are impressed when they see Jesus' people living Jesus' life. 
And that takes an empowering. It takes a conviction. And you don't have to take every step today. It's a lifelong journey. But will you take one? Will you come go with us? Will you let the Spirit speak to you? And Lord, I, I pray, I pray that the obedience that you well up in the lives of believers, God, would, would begin to change families and neighborhoods and nations and the world. And it's, it's doing dishes. It's simple tasks. It's a long journey of obedience and a faithfulness provided by you and an empowerment from you. And so, God, we, 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 we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.